You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, thank you for pressing play on this episode, number 54. We have a great show for you once again. I'm happy to tell you that today, the goal is for you to become better in rehearsal as a leader, to become better giving master classes in clinics, and to also become better in your performances in regard to communicating with your audience. We're going to talk about detailed tips on how to rehearse a band you've never worked with while you're on the road, for example. So you can't really take your band, your normal group with you for whatever reason. So we're going to give you tips on how to deal with with that situation. You want to still put on a good performance. What do you do when you have a little time? Also, we're going to talk about how to get an ensemble to sound better instantly in the festival setting. So normally in in these festival settings, you're given maybe 30 minutes, if you're lucky, right, to work with a group after their performance, and everybody's expecting you to give some tips on how they can become better right now. How do you do that? We're going to talk about that. And also we're going to talk about how to connect with your audience. And here's a hint. The connection begins before you ever set foot on stage. I have the perfect person to talk about these things. Our guest today is the first prize winner of the International Great American Jazz Piano Award. Also, she's a Motima recording artist since 2003 She's toured internationally for the last 20 years, has 13 CDs as a leader that have chopped the Jazz Week radio charts. She's worked with Benny Golson, Rufus Reed, Randy Brecker, many other great jazz musicians. I'm so happy to bring to you right now to Behind the No podcast, Miss Lynn Arial. Welcome to the show today, Lynn. We're so glad to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I just introduced you to the audience, but we still want to get to know you a little better. So I want to ask you, what are some of your interests outside of performing and teaching music? Oh, my goodness. That's an interesting question because life takes up so much time that to say that I have any hobby, I I don't have any hobbies. Um, Most of the time I'm working very hard. I'm practicing or I'm dealing with the business that is, you know, obviously a part of, of this career and um, teaching a lot. And that takes up so much time. I try to exercise. I try to eat well. And then when it's time to relax a little bit at night, you know, I watch, I watch movies or, or, um, you know, TV series that I'm addicted to, <laughs> but do not that much time. And I, <laughs> I'm usually pretty tired. Do you like to binge watch? Do you have like a Netflix yes. account or something? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there have been several series that it's just, you know. Which was one of your favorite series? Um, Suits is great. And um, uh, uh, so Leif Shriver, um, I'm forgetting the name of it. Uh, and, and I just started watching Blood Bloodlines. See, I'm not hip to those two, so I'm going to have to check uh, them out now. <laughs> there, yeah, there are a lot of amazing series. It's just hard when you get to the end of the binge <laughs> You have to wait till the next week. Yes, I understand. That's hard. That's how I am with Walking Dead. <laughs> I haven't watched that. So, all right, yeah, yeah, it's kind of gory, but uh, 
So I want to uh, talk about your your professional career, of course, which is why we're here. And um, first, tell us how you ended up studying jazz. And because I understand that you started classically and then yeah. tell us how you ended up performing jazz professionally. Mm -hmm. Well, I started improvising when I was a little girl, like at age three or four on a toy piano. And it was like this little plastic piano that my parents bought. And I really loved to play melodies that I had heard off the radio or from musicals. Um, and I begged my parents to let me study. And the local piano teacher said that I was too young. And I think we waited another year. And then she finally took me as a student, accepted me as a student. Um, but at that time, you know, there was no jazz, you know, available to me, really. Um, and she just taught me classical music. And uh, I was still playing by ear. I would, I, I would go home and play little bits of what was written, but then make up the rest myself. And, and you know, that our lessons were were challenging. I'm sure for her. And um, I remember seeing my music being marked up in many, many different colors because I wouldn't really read what was there. I would just kind of take it in a different direction. But I got better at that. And, um, and I studied classical for many years. I met my classic, my main classical teacher, Rebecca Pennies, when I was 17 and, uh, worked very intensively with her until I was around 25, got a master's in classical. And around that time, I was literally walking down the street and the voice in my head said, you should study jazz. And I didn't know what jazz was. I didn't know that it was improvised music, that you play the melody. And then after that, um, you make up new melodies over the existing chord changes. And so I took some lessons with um, someone at the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music, and he put round midnight right in front of me, <laughs> like the first lesson. Wow. And he said, play that. And so I kind of tried to work my way through it. And he said, now make up, make up new melodies. And I said, are you kidding? That's, that's what jazz musicians are doing? He said, yeah. And so I studied with him for a while, and then eventually with Dave Hazeltine, who uh, was in Milwaukee at that time, and he, I said to him, I really need a method, and he had me starting to transcribe Charlie Parker and Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk and Cedar Walton and on and on, and learning the jazz vocabulary, and, and I was hooked. When you first saw that uh, lead sheet with Round Midnight on it, at that point, did you understand... Uh, the chord symbols and how to spell chords from your previous training, or was that also new to you? That was new. I think I was able to, you know, E flat minor. I think that wasn't a problem. I, I, if it said half diminished, I probably wouldn't have known what that was. But I got through it enough that, you know, it, it made sense. I could hear it. So before that first jazz lesson, well, what were you doing well, in, in your career, if, if anything? I was I was finishing up a master's degree in classical performance and practicing nine hours a day and, and getting ready to take the tests that you have to take at the end in order to, to get a master's. And it was it was right, you know, kind of the that last year. And so I started to play jazz, but I also had to keep working on my classical repertoire. So after that first lesson, that first jazz lesson, how much longer before you, I guess, stepped out and tried to have your professional jazz career? I don't know if it was, 
a year or two years, it, it was, I, I was playing some solo gigs where I could play songs from musicals and kind of vary the melody as I was learning, you know, all the components of, you know, all the, the, the things that we have to learn when we play jazz. But, um, and I think I may have gotten together for jam sessions with music, with other musicians. And so I don't know if it was a year and a half, two years, it might have been right after the first year that I got a solo gig and was playing, you know, songs through musicals. But was I a jazz musician? I, no, but I was starting to embellish and work on different voicings and, and so forth. So today, what music-related activity is responsible for your income? Touring, teaching. Uh, I'm also an associate professor at the, uh, the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. And we have an awesome music department. Um, thrilled to be there. Wonderful students. Um, so I, I juggle both. And that's, I've been there about seven years. And before that, I was touring all the time and, uh, and booking my group and dealing with you know, all the business, which sometimes was eight hours a day before I even got to the piano. And if you start early in the morning and you're, you're on the phone, you know, that, that much time or working on things by six o'clock at night, it's, it's hard to say, okay, now it's time to start my scales and start mm-hmm. practicing because you're kind of, you know, burnt out by that point. Now I'd like to get into that as, as deeply as we possibly can right now, uh, because this is behind the note advice for a successful music career. So this is very important. And so will you tell us like what things are done in the office to keep the band working? At that time, we didn't have computers. Doesn't it feel funny saying that now? Yeah. <laughs> I feel really old, but um, we didn't have computers. So I got lists. Of, I think there were databases available then to order, you know, of, of clubs throughout the country or, or of music festivals and, and performing arts societies. And I started getting on the phone and calling, cold calling, which is very difficult because I had to introduce myself. I had to somehow get their attention. And I learned very quickly that if, if a promoter would say, um, let me call you back, <laughs> I had to find a way of not letting that end the conversation because they, they never would. So then you feel like it's being rude to call them back because they said, let me call you back. So I would say, would it be okay if I call you in a couple weeks? after I send you my tapes. And then they would usually say, okay. In other words, I gave them the decision-making power because actually they are, they are the deciders, to quote the past president. They are the deciders. And uh, yes. <laughs> we won't go there. But, but you know, um, they're, the, they're the people who make decisions. So I have to, you know, I wanted to be extremely respectful I want to be that way with everyone, of course, but um, I, I don't want to violate their space and their protocol. And I figured they probably had 100 tapes, cassettes at that time to listen to and musicians calling them all the time. So I didn't want to be a drag. I wanted to start out with that. And I didn't want to do harm to the situation. So then I would call back and, and they say, oh, I haven't had a chance to listen to it. And I say, okay, you know, like I wanted to be the person that was like, no matter what, it's okay. Even if it didn't feel great inside, that's okay. Because this is a new person. We're not meeting face to face. 
we don't feel their energy like you know when you talk with someone in person it's very different over the phone and of course plenty of times they assumed I was a vocalist I'm sure you've heard that from women musicians all the time oh what do you you know you're a singer so um I just had to establish as quickly as I could what I did and uh, where I was from, I lived in New York, and I was interested in playing, having my group come and play at their venue and so forth. Now, I want to point out, there's a little part of psychology in there. I don't, I don't know if you were aware of it or not, but getting that first yes is very important to getting a second yes. So, right. So just a simple question of, is it okay for me to call you back? Yes. Is, that's huge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Be- because, first of all, the second lesson is that you want to get a decision fast. So them answering that with a yes or a no is a win for you because you know that you can continue your search elsewhere or you can call them back. And in that case, you have the yes, the first yes, which means you can probably get a second yes. So you're on the right trail either way. Absolutely. I, I don't know if I was aware of it. That that was beautifully you know, articulated. Um, if someone is saying yes to you a lot, I think on some level it's you know it's building up a particular positive energy, <laughs> even Correct. if it's yes. small things. And um, I'll, I remember that movie, um, "What About Bob?" with Bill Murray, where he <laughs> he, would, he would say, "Well, if someone if someone turns me down or rejects me, I don't like to think of it as a no. I think of it as the line is temporarily busy." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I remember that. That was pretty funny too, and it still <laughs> yeah. is. So you leave the door open, even if they say, no, we just don't have anything. Unless someone says, you know, we don't think you are a good fit for our venue, which rarely happens because, you know, they don't know. I mean, that's, that's a very strong statement. But, but if they say, we just don't have anything this year. Okay, that's a maybe. That's, you know, come visit this person again. So take, take us through one of those examples of when you got a yes from a cold call and that led into an actual performing job. How do you go from cold to warm? If they like the tape, uh, I said I would say, can we talk about some dates? Um, now, let's say it's the first date of of what ho- hopefully is going to be a tour. So they'll say, um, you know, when what are you, what are you looking at? Or they might say, we have November fifteenth open, and I would say that looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> which it did, then I would say, great, let's, let's pencil that in. I have to get some logistical things together, but I think that should, be, that should work great. And then I would tell them that I will send them promotional materials, that I had a mailing list, and I would promote the gig as much as I could through the media and so forth and let them know that I really cared about building an audience with them. And I would, ask, I would also ask questions if that would indicate whether it was – whether a club would be full dependent on the artist or if they were full all the time anyway. So which is, that's the clubs, those are the clubs you want to play, play in. That they don't go from 200 people to zero depending on the artist. That right. they have a steady clientele because then there's a greater chance of success, obviously. And so I would ask that question. I would say, what's, what's a really good night for you or what's a bad night? And how much does it really depend on the artist coming in and and I always try to learn from every situation and I would say and you know how do those artists promote the gigs and what you know are there, are there special things that they do or and they would say well they have their mailing list they called all their friends and so forth and I said I'll send you promotional pr- promotional material and posters and everything I can can to help 
get people interested in coming to hear our group for the first time. That's assuming we got the first date. If they had a lo- very low budget that, you know, like, how are we going to make this work? I would try to suggest a possibility like, you know, I want this to be a win-win situation. Is there a way that we could, you know, have a guarantee versus a percent of the door so that if we do well, we all do well? Because it takes a lot of money to put it, bring a group on the road and so forth. And sometimes they didn't want to be bothered with that. But sometimes they would say, yeah, that's okay. <clears throat> Over the years, unfortunately, clubs have set a very high limit for the guarantee. And there's still, some clubs just play, pay flat fees, but others have a guarantee versus the door. But they make the guarantee so high that, that you'd have to sell out two separate shows to go into percentages. And, you know, they figured it out so that they can stay in business. It's rough on the artists, though, needless to say. I see. And so have you learned a way that the artists can't overcome that? Have an anchor date that pays a lot of money. Okay. <laughs> and then put club, club dates around it because it's very difficult to just do it with clubs nowadays. They, whether you come in with a sextet or a quintet or a trio, they may charge the same ticket price and they, they offer you the same in my experience. So it's very challenging. And sometimes I, I was very fortunate to tour with my own group for many, many years. But I've also loved playing with musicians from the area, and I've learned a lot that way. I've learned, I think, how to rehearse a band very succinctly and well so that it doesn't sound like a jam session when, we, when, we, when we're ready to play. That really sounds like that we really have the arrangements down. I would send material beforehand, recordings and, um, and charts, and go through them enough so that everybody felt comfortable and I would really spend time thinking of ways to have the other musicians get it, whatever it was, as quickly as possible in my choice of language. So we didn't spend more than, you know, a few minutes on each tune, but, but we really pulled together quickly. And that's, that's a skill to, you know, to develop. So you kind of just led me into one of my questions. In episode 32, we talked about how to run a rehearsal successfully. We've all been in those rehearsals where you kind of wasted time and yes. you think man we didn't do much we could have done something else and it would have been better time spent what techniques have you discovered to get the best out of your rehearsal time with your band this is assuming it's a it's a band i haven't worked with for example i just was in china and i i had a, a solo concert but then some club dates and these are musicians i'd never played with so i sent them the music beforehand put the set list together so that they, I, I didn't send them 30 tunes that, that I expected them to go through and then we'd only be playing 20. I really have respect for people's time and I don't want to waste it. They're really busy too. As the time approached, I had refined my set list and I sent them to the musicians so that they didn't have to be practicing things that we weren't going to be playing. And then I didn't start with the hardest arrangements. I started with ones that were you know, pretty straightforward. And if something, and I told them beforehand that I like to give more information rather than less so that nobody has to have, you know, has to be guessing. I don't expect anybody to have ESP. I'll try to be as, as clear as possible. Uh, and are they okay with that if I just stop and start as needed? And again, I purposefully say, are, are you okay with that? I don't want someone to feel insulted if after two bars, if it's not the right feel, that I say, um, let's try something this way or it needs to be more like this and I try to phrase things with questions like uh, would it be possible to blank 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 
again, you're giving the other person, I think, a sense of greater comfort rather than that's the wrong feel, which I would never say. <laughs> right. <laughs> because we're giving huge. them a negative message, like they've done something wrong and they haven't. They just don't know. So I, you know, and I, I, I try to say, you know, we might try a bunch of different feels on this tune. Don't feel that if, if I ask to try another feel that there's anything wrong with the one before it. And I always try to validate whatever happened. Uh, like, okay, yeah, I think we're getting there. Let's, let's try something a little different. So I always try to stay in a positive frame of mind and, and, and vibe. And so let's say we just played down the head. And, and I always say, let's just try to do the heads. And if you want to do a course or so, but I'm not going to waste their time doing a solo or energy. I want them to save their energy for later. But I ask the musicians if they want to blow a few courses because these are new charts for them. And they might want to, and that's fine too. And let me see, what else do we do? So we go through the heads. And, um, and the other thing I do uh, is I have them play a ballad, like Body and Soul, just a few, mo- like four bars. And what usually happens is people play at kind of mezzo piano, mezzo forte, kind of right in the middle, like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the loudest, so usually like four to five. And I, I, I stop usually and say, now what I want to do is explore our group bandwidth. And I want us to play as quietly as we can, and then also we'll do as loudly as we can as well. And so everybody plays quietly, and I say, now let's cut that in half so that the bassist is barely touching his strings, like it's almost so vulnerable, you're, you're not, there's not like a strong pluck. And uh, I asked the drummer to have it just dissolve into air like a melting snowflake, like hardly any sound. And I said, people hear that. And I want to be able to go there with you. And if we haven't done this together at the rehearsal, we pro- no matter how quiet I play, they, you know, we might not go there as a group. Then they get used to that. And sometimes I'll, I'll just experiment with a few things so that they know that's part of the palette that I'd like to work with. For example, um, again, on ballad playing, I'll ask the drummer to use sticks, which I, I like. I like the ring, just that zing on the cymbal. They don't have to be doing much, but there's a very zen, zen quality, like, you know, where they hit the gong and, yes. the, and it follows out. And people's attention can go to that sound, and it's very meditative and, and profound, I think. And so I will sometimes actually go over the drums and demonstrate. Just It could just be this, just a, a, a zing or a ting like that, and let it ring. And I also tell drummers that every note they play matters to me. I also say this to bassists, but I, I, you know, um, and everybody. <laughs> but, um, but with the connection with the drummer, you know, I say every, every note matters. I am really listening to what you're doing on your snare drum, what you're doing with your, you know, on the, the um, ride cymbal and so forth. And it matters to me. And I'm going to be responding to that. So I, want you, I don't want you to feel that you're not being heard. I also ask drummers to finish my phrases for me. And sometimes they're not used to doing that. And I will do a phrase maybe that's out of four bars, maybe it's kind of a three-bar phrase. And I say, there you go, that's you. <laughs> All right? mm-hmm. And I tell them it doesn't need to be this big event. It could just be like a comma at the end of a sentence, just enough so that there's this little bit of interaction going on. And, and I said, and the space doesn't always happen at the end of a four, towards the end of a four-bar phrase. It could be at the beginning. So if all of a sudden you hear me not playing, do something. 
and and the basis the same. I, I tell them that that I'm listening to how they um, answer my phrases or interact with them. Yeah, I'd like to have a musical conversation and so forth. And sometimes groups have heard recordings of mine and think that they're supposed to do a ton of stuff. They're really supposed to interact a lot. And so everybody's, it's like a traffic jam. Everybody's doing all this stuff. And so then I know I need to do some things that will help us breathe. And I would I'll say, like, let's do a medium swing. And, and I will just say, do the bare minimum, hardly anything. Just, just your right hand, that's it. Let's just stay with that for a while. And this could be just a couple minutes. And I just want to break it down. You know, let's do, let's do our, most intera- our greatest amount of interaction first. You know, we know what that is already. Okay, now let's, let's drop it to nothing. Let's find somewhere in the middle and uh, make sure that we, hopefully we're not crashing into one another. Those are some of the things that, that I do when I'm rehearsing. That's really good. Really great advice. I'm going to recap some things you said here. So number one, you send a list ahead of time with the specific tunes that you're going to play out of courtesy and respect for your band members' time. And I also noticed that you said you st- you begin rehearsal with the easy tunes first and that's another great lesson actually a great life lesson because that's an example of getting a small win yes and and creating momentum mm-hmm. s- similar to getting that yes from a stranger that first yes may i call you back <laughs> so yes. th- that's another great example <laughs> and so you start with the easy tunes first. That's a great lesson. And then you also get input from your other band members by saying things like, are you okay with that? Or getting other types of input. And that's a good example of working with the team in the, in a true sense and not just dictating. So you, you have a, a, it sounds like a good team atmosphere where everyone contributes, which, yes. is, which is healthy. Thank you. Thank you. And then you also are very in tune with the balance and dynamics of your band. And you say you get that out from the beginning by playing a ballad and bringing people's attention to to the sound. And something else that you mentioned that I really love is that you like to say positive things. And I, I love this example, uh, which would be if I were to tell you, don't forget to bring your towel to the beach, for example. Some people think that's okay, but if you're trying to send a, a positive message, instead right. of saying don't forget because the word don't is negative, right? Right? Do not. That's negative. Instead, you would say, remember to bring your towel. Yes. <laughs> right? It's a big difference. It's a big difference. It's, it has a, a big difference on, on your psyche and, and the energy that you're communicating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and by the way... Um, I also go to the other extreme of getting as loud and crazy as we possibly can. And I often have to get drummers to really let go more because they're thinking, oh, it's piano trio. And, you know, but if we're playing a a really fast tune or or some of the monk tunes I do, I want to be able to to just to have it implode. And and so I'll say, no, no, no more. Let's let's rock this. Let's really rock. Oh, I, I hopefully don't say no. I'm saying, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> let's take it up to Mach five. Yeah. <laughs> and they start laughing because most of the time everybody's telling drummers to work more quietly, and I'm usually telling them that I that I need them to project out even more to reach the person in in, in the back row, um, and then I need to hear more sound, and they're usually happy to do that. 
And the other thing, just to add on to what you said so beautifully, um, the idea is not to ever shut anybody down in, in even the smallest ways. Um, I remember a story years ago with a guy I was dating, and he, he said he had met this couple on the beach, and they had been together 40 years, and they looked so happy. And he said, what is the secret? And they said, we don't, we haven't damaged each other. And I thought to myself, you know, how often do we damage each other? Just little bits, just little things. And so to the extent that we can use language to be um, validating, affirming, that people feel better after talking to us, that's, that's a goal that I have. And of course, I don't succeed all the time. I, I, I hope I, I do, but um, things don't always come out the right way. But I want to always try to have people feel a positive energy. Because, you know, in, in a band situation, they're, they're doing the best they can. So uh, if we want to have a great night, I want them to feel open and to feel relaxed. And the other thing I do is I repeat things a fair amount that I know are problem areas, even if they, they went okay. I, I just know from experience, like this, at this particular point, this thing starts to happen. Or, or if I notice that um, uh, when a change is feel, or there's a little change in, in, in tempo, and, and I need to, to make sure that doesn't happen. I'll go over it a few times, and then I'll start to say things like, now just for me, I want to run through it again. Even though it, it is for me because <laughs> I have to play in the evening, but I know that the band needs that, but I don't want them to feel like I'm a school teacher and making them do it again. I, I want to, right. you know, especially, you know, there's a reality. I'm a woman, and most of the people I play with are men, and I want to make sure that, that, that you know, we all bring our issues to, to, to every situation. I don't want them to feel like um, I'm overbearing. I want to be very gentle and kind and clear as possible in my communications. That's interesting that you say that because uh, I read some reviews about your teaching, and those are some things that people praise you for, being very clear in your communication. So you're, you are doing that Thank effectively. You. Yeah. Thank you. So on that note, I want to ask you about being a, a guest clinician. That's uh, something that most musicians have the, get the privilege to do, but it's very challenging in mm-hmm. that you see a band for a few minutes sometimes, or if you're lucky, you get to see them for a day, or if you're really lucky, you might do a workshop for a week. But e- even still, that's a short time. So I want to ask you, how, how do you see... Or what are some techniques that you discovered work for you to allow you to see immediate results in mm-hmm. ensembles? That's a wonderful question. I, I love doing clinics. When I'm listening to the groups, the, I, I will often have a piece of paper with me so that I can not forget what I want to say because there's a lot going on. And sometimes if there are a few soloists, it's hard to remember exactly what happened in the first solo. And, and you know, I want to, and my memory <laughs> questionable at times so I I sometimes write things down and I tell them that I'm not like writing anything bad but I'm just like helping my own memory um so I, I try to think of what what is the core issue that could make this group sound better right away of course we can always tell people you know listen to this transcribe this practice this scale practice this pattern 
and that might give results, but it, it might take a while. But are there certain things right away? And I'm, I'm trying to think of some, some examples. For example, if, if I hear that, that everybody has a jazz vocabulary, but it's not flowing and it's not easy and there's faltering going on, for example, I use the example that, you know, I ask them how they eat a sandwich. And then they usually say, well, you take a bite. I said, yeah, you take a bite and you swallow it. You know, you oh, first you chew it. <laughs> you chew it first, and then you swallow it. Although maybe, maybe not. <laughs> right, depending on how hungry you are. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, so how does it feel when you put if you stuff the whole sandwich in your mouth all at once? And they said you would choke. You would feel like you were choking. I said, and what happens when you're performing, and you're doing something where all the moving parts are not solid, and you're not in the flow state? And you feel like your head is jammed up. And they say, well, it feels like you're choking. I said, yeah. So I said, let's, let's not choke. Let's find the space that we can play in where we won't be choking. So that might mean doing something very simple. For example, if they were playing a blues, if it's a more beginning level group and they're doing all this stuff, but you can tell they've plugged in licks, which is very important. It's part of our process. But we also want to start to flow and be able to use the language just like we do when we're talking, you know. Um, and so I might just say, let's, let's solo over an F minor pentatonic and, uh, and I play it for them as this is the blue scale minus one note. And I have them sing it a bunch of times and get comfortable on their instrument. And, um, that kind of gives me a sense right away. Uh, you know, if they're, if they're comfortable with that, then I have them blow over a blues, but that might be too hard they might falter and start to play their licks. And I, then I stop and I say, now what we need to do is actually have this be our universe. Like if, it, you know, if you give someone three or four or five notes to play with and they have trouble just staying with the notes, it means a part of their mind is overriding what the exercise is. Now, a lot of times students do it totally incorrectly. And so what I usually say is, that sounds great. But that's not the that's that that is that's an exercise we'll do later. <laughs> nice. I'm going to adopt like that. that. I'm going to take that one. That sounds beautiful. I heard some beautiful stuff, uh, and it, it's it's. I need it to be more simple because I want you to you know really work with this universe. And I always use the analogy: if if Sonny Rollins came in the door and I had the nerve to say, "Sonny, would you just blow over an F minor pentatonic?" What do you think would happen? And they just said, whoa. And I said, he'd blow the roof off. He could do it 10 hours. He could do it, you know, day in, day out, finding different ways rhythmically. And, you know, there's, there's just so many things you, can, you can, can do. And I also use the analogy of John Coltrane. Um, when, when Billy Taylor went to his house, his, his apartment one morning and said, what are you going to practice today, John? And he said, I'm practicing C major. And he came back at 9 o'clock that night, and he said, what have you been practicing all day? He said, I've been practicing C major. And then I asked the students, what does that mean? And then I wait for them to answer, because I want to engage their minds. I don't want to just keep talking, and maybe they'll get 10% of it. I want to know what they're thinking and if they're grasping it. And I said, I don't think he was just going up and down a C major scale. I think he was going in and out and, you know, okay, maybe let me do this pattern for an hour and maybe I'll, you know, practice on the highest octave of my horn for an, for, for an hour and just get comfortable up there, everything you can think of. So I said, we're doing this with F minor pentatonic. 
And if that's too hard, and the minute it's too hard, I immediately make it easier. And I want to take any stigma out, out of if I, if I make it easier, like that they're failing. So I, I also I tell them I'm big on analogies. I ask them if they've ever baked a cake. And some of them had, some of them hadn't. I said, so, you know, the cake is, is, is in the oven. You pull it out. What do you do to test it? And they say, you stick a fork in it or tooth. <laughs> and if it comes out and it's all gooey, what does that mean? And they say, it's not done. And I said, what, what do you do then? And they say, well, we put it back in the oven. I said, has anybody here had a nervous breakdown and questioned their self-worth by having to put a cake back in the oven? Because <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't baked yet. And they, yes. they, say, they all laugh and they, and they say, no, I said, so if I asked you to do something a little simpler than the exercise you're doing, it's just not baked yet. The, you know, the cake is not ready to come out of the oven and it will be five minutes from now. I love oh, that. I'm still in that too. Hours or five hours. And the last one, I'm sorry to be, you know, like one analogy after another, but I, I like to set the stage with analogies so that later on I can refer back to them. So instead of feeling like I'm giving them tons and tons of information, it's just, oh, yeah, I remember she talked about that, and she's applying it to something else now. I, I go through this exercise with them. I say, what's 2 plus 2? 4. 3 plus 5. 5 plus 9. 11 plus 13. 13 plus 24. 85 plus 37. And, of course, you know, by the time you mention some of the other numbers, everybody kind of stops and starts laughing. They, get slow, they slow down, yeah. yes. Yeah, and then I say, what's 2 plus 2? And um, they, they laugh and they say four. And I tell them that's going to be our metaphor for if this exercise is done. If it's, if it's two plus two, I said, you did not have to pull out your calculators for two plus two. You did not have to count on your fingers or your toes. And, but at some point in your life, somebody explained two plus two for you, to you. You probably were really small. And they probably said, here are two apples and here are two other apples. And now we've got four. We have four. And so there was a time you didn't know two plus two, but you do now. And that's because you've done it a million times. So sometimes we need to repeat things many, many times till it becomes as easy as two plus two. And we can, it's like, look, ma, no hands. And in lessons or in classes, I will ask for their feedback constantly um, because teaching is such a, a dynamic, you know, experience as we both know. And I'll say, how did that feel? Was that two plus two? And they'll say, I don't think so. I said, not ready for prime time yet. Not, can't take it to the bank, right? <laughs> and they say, no. And then they're okay with going back because they don't like the feeling of it feeling uncomfortable. And many students haven't experienced ease ever. And then they all of a sudden do an, an exercise or maybe a certain way of soloing over a tune, like doing one note a bar or something like that. And they go, oh, my God, that was really easy. And that's when I'm thrilled. And that's where we build. You know, we build on that. And we're back to the small wins and building on the small Absolutely. wins. Build on success. That's One awesome. Success after another. Yeah. I like that. And it sounds like that you use, you, you spend some time in the music, physically playing music, but you also have to set that up first. And in your, in your case, you use analogies uh, to make the connection to the student so they yeah. understand your language. Yes. And then they can think about that when they're not with you and mm -hmm. hopefully grow from there. Perfect. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. All right. People say that you connect well with your audience in ways that they aren't used to witnessing. I don't know how you feel about that, but 
you probably I don't know if you agree or not, but what are some ways that you've learned to connect with your audience? Well, there's the playing. Yes. And I'll, I can maybe talk about that first. And then there's talking. <laughs> so um, playing, you know, the repertoire we choose, the way we present it in an arrangement, the way we solo, all those things either pull people in or don't. And I want to, to, I want to reach out to people and, and, you know, invite them to come with me on this musical journey that we're having. So the repertoire is very, very important. And, and how we sequence the repertoire, what, what's a good opening tune that will engage the audience right away? And there's no formula. It, it might, it's hard to tell. And, and I always think that people are maybe perhaps stressed coming in from their day uh, where a lot is going on in a way that's friendly and not invasive on the first tune and keep the energy up before, you know, a ballad is played like so, so that, you know, there's some momentum at the beginning of the set. I'm aware of keys in the colors of keys. Um, C major sounds different, feels different than E flat major. And so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what key feels best and I'm, uh, what feels best to me isn't always what sounds best. So I always record the key. Um, and sometimes I'm choosing between two, three, or four keys, and I'm just not sure which one feels the best to listen to. So that's interesting. Let me pause right there. Do you, are, you trying to, are you trying to decide what song to play in a certain key? Or have you decided that you want to play a specific tune? And now the question is, what key do I want to play it in? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, for example, um, I recorded a, an album called Nuance with Randy Brecker and um, George Moraes and Anthony Pinciotti. And I, one of the tunes that I had prepared was Ballad of the Sad Young Men, which is a gorgeous ballad. And I don't know what the original key is, and I tried to not think that that should be a factor at all, because maybe it was for a vocalist, that the original key happened, maybe it was meant for a horn player. So... You know, I really go through all the keys and play it and, and so forth. And I got together with a local trumpet player, and I, I played it in three or four keys, and we were choosing, you know, we were kind of going back and forth between E-flat and D. Now, E-flat concert might have been a more, I don't know, I don't know if that would have been a better key in general, but D had more gravitas to it, even though D major is kind of a, a bright key. But I went back and forth, and I was surprised. And then I, we ended up recording it in D major because it just felt like the tune. It just felt better. And it was fine on the horn also. It, wasn't, you know, it didn't feel uncomfortable. Um, so that's happened a, a fair amount of times. So, um, so in terms of reaching the audience then, um, as a pianist, my right hand and how I speak with my right hand and how I sing with my right hand or try to sing with my right hand is really important. Uh, I want the phrases to reach the last row of the auditorium and to be shaped in a way that I can tell a musical story to, to, the, the, to the listeners. Again, if I just say, okay, I'm just blowing over these changes <laughs> and I'm just going to you know, just jump in, here I am in my solo, well, that doesn't give the listeners a chance to you know, hear the melody and then, okay, what's going to happen next? And sometimes um, starting with just varying the melody is a lovely transition 
to getting to more of the vocabulary and the, you know, the, the, the typical soloing things that we might do. So, so it kind of is a nice bridge rather than, okay, solo, here's a solo. And, um, and I spent time singing away from the instrument and also tapping rhythms and hearing the tune in my head, um, which I do with my students a lot also. If we're, if we're tapping the rhythm of, of our solo in our head, we're dealing with 50% of what we have to do without pressure of us evaluating what notes we played. And it really helps to line things up so that everything seems to flow more easily when, when, when I've tapped just on a, a little shelf that I put on my legs. You know, That's mm-hmm. my piano, but there are no keys. Uh, and it's very interesting. I can watch how my left hand is interacting with my right. And rhythm will reach people they, people hear rhythm before they hear a note choice. I'm I'm convinced. Oh yeah, I definitely agree totally. with that. You can play a one note solo and yep. everybody will be into it. Yeah. Most certainly with the with the right feel and rhythm behind it, for sure. Mm-hmm. So so you you take uh, a lot of consideration into your preparation of the music to and you think about the audience before you're even in front of them. That's one way that you connect, which makes yes. perfect sense. Yes, I do. And what are some things that you do you say speaking to them? Yeah. How, how do you connect with your words? Well, I used to be really shy with talking with the audience. And I, actually, I could talk a lot if that's all I was doing and I could play. But, um, you know, I feel comfortable playing. But there's, it seems like there's a different part of my brain talking to the audience than going back to the instrument. But I realized that I had to get over that because um, people had the impression that I was, I don't know, either standoffish or shy, and I actually wasn't at all. I was, I just didn't want to like mess it up. <laughs> I didn't want to say things the wrong way or, or I didn't know what to say. Then I realized you don't have to have any big thing planned. You can just say, hi, you know, thanks so much for coming. And we're going to start with this tune and, you know, just talk to them. Right. Keep it simple. You know, that's it. Just keep it simple. Yes. And uh, I work with students you know, on this a lot because I tell them that we, we need to connect on every level, you know, on every level we can. And especially nowadays where people have so much information coming at them. And I think there's a great need for connection. So that can come in many ways. And so I talk to the audience and sometimes I've digressed and talked too much and got into, I go, I don't even know what planet, but you know, <laughs> we won't go there. And, um, and then I finally get back to the music, but I try to, you know, keep with the music most of the time. That's the good tip. Just stick with the music. That's why people are there. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, just go on. That's it. You're safe. <laughs> Perfect. You know, what? I actually messed up and I let time get away from me. So I'm going to uh, end with this one question. What would you uh, tell someone that's just starting out in their career? Uh, assuming they have the chops and they've worked all that important part out, uh, what can they do to set themselves up for success in their career? I would tell them to really think about how they're going to present themselves, how they want people to perceive them, um, get a press kit together, have a website, look at other people's websites, learn from others. You can do a website for you know not that much money. You can actually put it together yourself or get someone to help you do it without having like a whole webmaster or anything. I had that for years, but I I recently redid my website on Squarespace and I can update it very easily. 
and it's user friendly. If I can handle it, anybody can handle it because <laughs> it, it, it's it's quite straightforward. I would really practice my presentation, talking to club owners or promoters, and either turn on a tape recorder and practice, or have someone be the, be the club owner. I find with my students that when I role play with them, sometimes like I'm the club owner, and you want to get a gig, go ahead, sell me. They they are they don't know what to say at all, and so I give them little things to say that are very simple and easy. It's not it's not like writing a novel. They can just have a couple things that that work, and proper follow up. Uh, being having a Facebook page and being in touch with with everybody who's you know a friend and letting them know when you're playing and reminding them in a nice way and also learning business protocol with starting with tremendous respect for every single person on the planet you are you know many of whom you are dealing with that means your 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 uh, the other students or your other colleagues and judge no one including yourself because that gets nowhere and it just creates negativity so i tell them if they hear a player that they think is not advanced and they feel themselves feeling like oh well i play better than they or whatever just remember you sounded like that at a certain point and and a week from now or a month from now that person could have an epiphany and t- be tearing it up i have heard it happen trust yeah. me yes. so any any judgment is we, we just it, 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 we never want to do that we just want to want everybody to be moving forward on their own paths at their own at the speed that they're you know whatever speed they're they're moving you know at and be be kind to everyone and be generous be generous with your time uh, be generous with you know helping friends if, if a club owner if you're working a gig and the club owner needs something you know it's yes what, what is it that you know how can I help and and I've seen kind of an epidemic of students not responding promptly to emails. And I'm going to give a presentation in a couple of weeks at UNF about professionalism, and talk about not responding quickly to an email. And and, and you know I've I've had instances where I've either forgotten or it's got lost, and I feel really badly. And I try to not let that ever happen. You want to show respect all the time, and answering an email promptly is a, sh- a sign of respect for the other person. You, it is like saying, you matter. You matter to me. And we need to give that message all the time to everyone we're dealing with. And then I've told students also, and I'll just wrap it up here, but I, I've told students, if you treat everybody like whoever, however you would treat your icons or you know, um, anybody that you totally admire, if they walked in the room, how would you treat them? Okay, start treating your, your, your friends that way. Maybe not without the formality of, you know, like if President Obama walked in the room or you'd say, Mr. President, you, you know. Right, <laughs> right. You can be on a first name basis, but you would be on your best behavior, you know. You would, you would be, you would listen intent, you know, carefully. You would, you know, not talk too much. You would just listen and be very charming. And I tell them, you all can be charming. You need to be charming all the time with everybody you're dealing with. And make them feel like they are the center of your universe. And they should be at that moment. Beautiful advice. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All the best. Thank you. And thank you, the listener, for sticking around to the end of the episode. I'm so thankful for you. And we do this just to help each other grow. Thank you, Lynn, for your time today. 
And as usual, I like to do a recap, a short recap. I'm going to sum everything up to this. Become a better communicator. That's it, period. In rehearsal, when you're a better communicator, you have a better rehearsal. I listen to myself in the recordings of my rehearsals, and I always come back and I think, oh, my goodness, how do the guys deal with me? Sometimes I'm just not as clear as I thought I was. And in the master class setting, when you're typically standing in front of strangers you've never met before, right? You have to know how to speak to them right now in their language or in your, or help them understand the way you speak. I had a great, great teacher, Ron Carter, not the bass player, but the educator. Look him up if you don't know of him. I watched this man time and time again uh, stand in front of, of, of young students who probably don't even know some of these terms that he's using but he still effectively communicates his point whatever his point is if it's to um, uh, swing a certain way or uh, to have a certain balance in the band he's able to, to communicate those things so if you're able to become a better communicator you will win so how do you do that well practice uh, I know that there's Toastmasters just about anywhere that you that you live. Uh, go online, see where the local Toastmasters is. Go to some of those meetings, become a better speaker. Read some books on how to communicate better. And of course, put what you learn into practice. Thanks for pressing play today on this episode. I really appreciate you. I really want to hear from you this way. Listen, go to BehindTheNote.com and leave me a voicemail, please. Tell me what you like about the show and or leave a question. I really have a desire to have a question and answer show with your voice on it. That's all for today. Thanks again. And we'll see you in the next episode. God bless you.